Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to this week's episode. We have an excellent topic and guest for you in this show. The main subject we explore is how to fight back from worse or losing positions. And to help me discuss this is National Master Jeremy Kane. Jeremy recently wrote a unique chess book called The Next to Last Mistake, Improve Your Results Through Sheer Determination. And the subject of his book, Coming Back from Losing Positions, is actually something I can painfully relate to on the other side, where I've lost some OTB games recently against opponents where I had the winning position, but apparently my opponents had read the awesome advice in Jeremy's book and turned the tables on me. I'm kidding a bit, of course, but I do think it's great to remember that you may still have fighting chances even if you're a piece down in a classical game. In this interview, I chat about Jeremy's chess journey, the subject of resiliency in his book, along with a few tips that he shares from it. And then finally, we discuss his role as curriculum director for chess.com. And he offers some insights about the incredible number of lessons on chess.com that maybe you weren't aware of. Hope you enjoy my interview with Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk with you. I'm excited to talk about your uh, your book and the subjects that it contains. I think it's an awesome book. Also, you are the first person, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the first person, I've done so many interviews now, the first person who is from chess.com who I've had on the show, which is only appropriate that I have somebody uh, at some point, right, since this is a chess.com sponsored show. So I'm excited in that respect, too. Yeah, I'm really excited about my work at chess.com and happy to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, we'll cover your book, we'll cover your work there and uh and your own chess journey. Speaking of chess.com, I just had one question for you cuz um I thought this was really awesome what they did recently with their chess.com global championship. Now I know you're the, you know the curriculum director if I got that title correct. That's right. So I know you're not like directly working with the events part of the company, but I just want to get your thoughts cuz I thought the chess.com global championship was really impressive. Like I knew they would do a good production, but I feel like they really stepped up to a new level with that particular tournament. I, yeah, I'm just curious to get your reaction to it or if you if you had any insights on it, that'd be cool too. Yeah, I'm only sort of very tangentially uh, related to the events team, but I watched the Global Championship or big chunks of it, and I think we just keep getting better and better at our presentation. And I think a cool thing with that one is it was actually a chess.com event. So we were able to kind of organize it in a way to make sure that the broadcast was good, as opposed to some other events you might end up getting kind of put in the corner and you can cover it or you're just relaying the moves from a distance. So getting able to set everything up to make the viewer experience excellent, I think, is a next step. 
Uh, yeah, that's a good point because unlike, say, you know, like they do a great job with like the commentary, say, for, for the candidates or something like that, but that's that's run by FIDE, so they don't have total control of how that that operates. So that that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, I, I think those how, can be awesome too, of yeah. course, but I think it's just perfect that you can set everything up the way you want it. <laughs> right, right. And it seemed like they did this with the intention to reach new heights in, in their production quality and how they do a tournament. Yeah, I, I know they're working hard on it, so it's just going to keep getting better. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about you now, <laughs> since you are the the uh, the guest here. So let's start with your own chess journey, because uh, I always like knowing how that begins and unfolds for people, because uh, it's a little bit different for each person, and I always like and appreciate hearing the, you know the subtle uniqueness of everyone's story. So, when did your passion for chess begin? So I'm one of those rare people where my dad and my older brother both play chess some. So I like don't remember learning how to play chess, like the very basics. It happened so young. I remember when I was maybe five, uh, a local player named John Wagner ran a chess club at a bookstore. And I would go, but I was mostly excited about the soft drinks. Um, I don't remember if I enjoyed playing chess there or not. <laughs> But I played, you know, a bit with my family and I think played a couple tournaments in elementary school. And then some, I think around sixth grade, um, the local high school chess coach, uh, FM Alex Bedinelli, uh, recommended a book to me, uh, Irving Chernev's Logical Chess Move by Move. And that sort of opened my eyes that chess wasn't just like shoots and ladders or something. There's like a whole nother level. And if you work at it, you can get really good. Um, and that's sort of where my improvement journey took off. How old did you say you were at that point? Sixth grade. Ah, sixth grade. Okay. Yeah. And so you got excited about chess as being, you know, something with that's rich and has a lot of depth to it at that point. Is that when you also decided to take it seriously? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't immediately like my main hobby necessarily, but that's when I started taking it more seriously and I think for a lot of kids, you like work at it, then you have some successes, and then you get more excited about it, and it kind of grows over time like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You gradually, over the years, from around age, uh, uh, well, I guess you were around maybe, oh man, now I have to do math and <laughs> what grade is what age. <laughs> just, I don't know, around 11, <laughs> I think let's about say. 11, 11 like yeah, that. exactly. Around 11, uh, gradually became more interested and more serious about, about your chess. Did you have someone through those years to kind of cheerlead or nurture that passion that you were developing for chess? Yeah. So initially I had my dad kind of help me with the basics. And then Alex, the uh, coach I mentioned earlier, was super helpful, um, basically from middle school through high school. And even after that, I'd, you know, talk to him occasionally. Um, and he's still a good friend of mine. Um, and he, we would not do weekly lessons, but we'd do kind of, if there was a big tournament coming up, he'd help me prepare for that. And if there was an important tournament, we'd analyze the games afterwards also to figure out where my mistakes were. Um, and that was enormously helpful. And, you know, ultimately, you achieved the National Master title uh, while you were in college. But I'm kind of curious about the in-between part of that and like when you started to get serious about chess, because, you know, I imagine there's a lot of middle school kids who start taking their chess seriously. I was one of them, uh, but never got nearly as far as you did, even like, you know, before you got to the national master title, just getting up to say, you know, 1900, 2000, that sort of thing. So that seems to require like 
a lot of dedication or uh, maybe extra, I don't know, innate talent, perhaps. In other words, I feel like you were <laughs> above average, well above average and just kids who just did chess regularly at that point in their lives. So was it something like you decided to get very serious and get set significant goals for yourself? Or were you just naturally in love with it and just spent a lot of time on it? I think I just really liked the kind of competitive nature of the game. Like, I'm not this, I, I can appreciate a beautiful combination or something, but I don't, you know, go to a tournament with the intention of making a beautiful combination as much as, you know, trying to win the tournament if possible. Um, right. And so I really liked, you know, the competitive nature. And at some point, I, you know, stopped playing baseball or whatever it was I was doing as a kid and switched more focused on chess. And I also enjoyed, like, reading chess books, which I think was helpful because. Some people, you know, really like playing, but they don't work on their game very much. And even though I might not have been the most diligent, like doing 40% tactics and 20% end games or something like that, <laughs> I think just enjoying the game and, you know, looking at Grandmaster games or reading a, a puzzle book or something, that is going to add up, even if it's not what the coach necessarily recommends, but it's what the student loves and keeps them involved in chess. Yeah, I really like that. So it sounds like that period for you, um, say as a you know adolescent and a teenager, your growth seemed to be more attributable to just your innate passion for the game versus, say, a very regimented curriculum to you know hit this marker, this marker, and then this marker. And uh, I like hearing that. <laughs> I like knowing that it was just more born out of just your love for it and your interest in, in, in participating in it. Did, do I have that right, though? Does that sound like a fair characterization? Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't want to make it sound like I did it all myself. Like My parents were supportive, and I mentioned I had coaching and things like that. But yeah, my parents never like pushed me the way that you know often these prodigies are getting pushed. They, they were happy <laughs> for my successes, but they would have also been perfectly happy if I you know, focused more on music or something instead. Okay, so then taking your the next uh, part of your journey in chess, you you go to college at the University of Chicago, and we have overlapped there in two ways, both because I'm from Chicago, and I don't know if you knew this, most people don't, I went there for law school. So I'm familiar with the university, <laughs> uh, although our times there did not overlap, I don't think. Uh, very cool. I, was, I spent two years in a dorm that was like a stone's throw away from the law school library. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's not far from uh, where I was. Although I was there, tra I transferred actually. So I spent my last two years of law school there from, let's see, I guess from 2007 to 2009. I don't know if that overlapped at all with you. It does, um, but it I feel does, like the really. undergrads and the law students probably don't run into each other that much. <laughs> yeah. And I really was only at the law school. Like, I never went to any other building. Yep. So uh, unless you decide to take just a fun trip to the law school, I guess we didn't <laughs> run into each other. <laughs> um, and what was your major while you were there? So I did a double major in political science and public policy, which maybe sounds more impressive than it was because those two fields are closely related and you know a bunch of the courses counted for each. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's still, I mean, those are still serious um, majors there at a very serious school. So I imagine that took a lot of your time. And and nonetheless, you still achieved the national master title while you were in college, which is really amazing. So what was, first of all, what was like the the motivation for you? Like, do you remember like a point in time in, in college where you're like, this is it, I'm going for the, the NM title now? Yeah, so I started college, I think, roughly 2100, so there was just about 100 points to go. 
And I definitely played some during the school year there. There was a, a, a university chess club, so it was nice to have that kind of social group doing chess together. Um, and I definitely would play a little less during the school year, but still some. I remember Chicago Open was always like right before finals every spring, and I just never did well in it because I couldn't, didn't, wasn't able to devote myself to chess enough, and so I would go in pretty unprepared and get and have a rough tournament. But it's still fun in in Chicago. There is so much chess there, so there's always either a tournament you can play, or even just back then there would be a bunch of locals just like playing blitz either in on campus or near campus almost you know all day long so if you ever wanted a study break it was fun to just get to go and hang out with some chess folks wow that's amazing was it difficult finding the time to bridge that 100 point gap while you were juggling you know your your time at university of chicago so i ended up doing it kind of very gradually just like you know 20 to 30 points a year or something and i remember one summer i had an internship downtown and i was pretty busy, but it was not school, so there wasn't any homework or something, so I had weekends free, and I was like 30 points away from the title, and I was just like, if I just play like five tournaments, random fluctuations should get me there, and it ended up just sort of barely working, like, I think Labor Day weekend I played an event and got to like 22.03, just sort of edging over the line. <laughs> that's awesome that you went with the random fluctuation strategy uh, and like playing consider- is playing is good for you so eventually i got to be you know clear master level but at the time it was just sort of if you keep playing you'll go up 30 points and down 30 points and you kind of hope it works out right right well that's that's still impressive that you got you bridged those 100 points because you know just to remind the audience because not everyone is equally familiar with what it takes at that level that, that 100 points is is significant, right? It's not like going from 1,400 to 1,500. Yeah. Um, just the further you go, the the harder each next step is. Um, so that's not the hardest 100 points in the world. You know, it's the difference between Magnus and someone 100 points lower than him is obviously much bigger. But that's definitely harder than when you're just starting out and, you, you know, can if you study a little bit, you can shoot up a few hundred points in a year. Did you have a coach to help you during that time? I didn't have any direct coaching. I think I would consult with Alex sometimes, um, but I wasn't getting frequent lessons with him. He wasn't in Chicago. Still very impressive. Thanks. Uh, I d- just for the record, I don't think I'll be able to random fluctuate my way up to national master, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I like that as a strategy to close that final gap. So let's talk a little bit about after college, because you did something impressive at that point too, which was that you earned, if I'm not mistaken, about 200 rating points even after you got the NM title? Yeah, I peaked um, just under 2,400. Like, I believe 2,389 is the highest USCF rating I've managed. And I actually haven't played classical in about five years. Um, Once I became a parent, it just became a lot harder to find the time and get enough sleep to be able to really go out and play a good tournament. Sure. What was the the time period that you did that in? Was that over like about a two-year period or was it longer than that? That was about, um, I would say about six years, um, getting oh, okay. those, those 200 points. Were you gunning for that? I mean, was that like a conscious goal or were you just still in that mode of, I'm just going to play and work on my game and we'll see how far that goes? That was mostly playing for fun. And I, I think the secret was for a big chunk of that time, I was a professional chess coach. 
I got a job after college with a group called, uh, they were called Silver Knights Chess then. Since then, they've been Silver Knights in Richmond as they did some stuff beyond chess. And I don't even, they may have changed again. Um, but the chess coach life is actually really good for playing competitively because you're teaching mostly kids. So you maybe teach in the morning and then you have a big chunk of time where you can study if you want to while the kids are in school. And then you teach, you know, two or three classes or lessons in the afternoon. But compared to, you know, a nine to five desk job, that gives you a lot of free time and ability to work on chess. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, 200 points, again, significant at that point in your chess career. Um, how structured were you in your approach to improving at that over those years? I would say, again, it was not incredibly structured. I would, you know, play games, analyze them, um, and do some, you know, studying of openings or tactics or endgames. But I think the main thing I like to read is mostly game collections. I just love a grandmaster explaining why they played their moves. Um, and I don't know, it's a bit like of a holistic approach. You're not studying one facet of the game, but you can pick up these patterns from sort of everything that happens. Yeah. Do you recommend that as an as a effective way to improve for club players as well? Yeah, I think going over games, you have to make sure they're kind of annotated at the right level. So... You know, a super grandmaster writing for, like, new in chess is going to be over the head of an 1,000-rated player. But right. something like Irving Chernev's logical chess move-by-moves, or move-by-move, or the greatest chess games ever played, something like that is perfect for an 1,000-rated player or a 1,200-rated player. Uh, that's good to hear. I just like getting more <laughs> reinforcement that, that my favorite study methods <laughs> from title players are, are the right approach. <laughs> good, good. And honestly, I think almost the fact that people are studying is more important than what they're studying. Like, hmm. most people listening to this are not professional chess players. So if you're, you know, at 2700 trying to make 2750, you might need to really work on your weaknesses and get that next, you know, painful each step of the way. But if you're an amateur, from a chess coach perspective, I just think doing chess is better than not doing chess. So do what's going to keep you interested. Yeah, great advice. You know, your story is unique to me, Jeremy, and uh, compared to the other guests, at least that I've had on this show, where, and I say this in like a very complimentary way, that you seem to have grown a lot uh, as a player without like a super regimented and structured program that was a little more relaxed, a little more casual. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you were very consistent and you worked hard, but you know, it didn't sound like you were obsessed with all the minutia of how you could structure your study. And I find that encouraging and I, I'm hopeful that other people do as well, especially well, especially if they're like me, because sometimes I worry that I'm not regimented and I mean, not structured enough. Like I, I put in the time, but sometimes I worry that about the ratios and balance of this versus that. Uh, but it doesn't sound like you were super obsessed with those details, and yet you still improved a lot. So um, just, yeah, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so the analogy I like to use is that chess is a little bit like a language. And I can tell you as someone who struggled to learn Spanish on and off for years in school, breaking it down into pieces is somewhat necessary. Like you have to, You do have to learn the grammar. But the main thing that makes people good at a language is speaking the language and going out and doing it. And I think 
some people are like, oh, I'm not going to play a chess tournament until I've mastered, you know, this rook endgame or something. And that's like saying, oh, I'm going to study Spanish, but I'm not going to speak it until I have learned all of the grammar rules. And that's just never going to work. You just need to kind of get out there and do things. And, you know, pay attention. Like, if you make a mistake, try to learn from it. But you're never going to have the perfect study plan, and you don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good there. Yeah, an excellent insight. So, yeah, let's move on to talking about your book now, uh, which is um, a really, really great subject. In late 2021, you published your first book called The Next to Last Mistake, Improve Your Results Through Sheer Determination. My first question to you about it is, what inspired you to write a chess book? So, I actually I wrote a draft of it way back in about 2017, and I was just taking a little bit of a break from uh, tournament play. I had a baby at home, and... I was just kind of reviewing some of my my last handful of games before I had taken a break and realized there were a fair number of positions where I had either made I got in trouble and I either made the right choice and often either held the draw or even sometimes won or I made some instructive mistakes and lost. And I thought there just weren't quite enough books or there are barely any books I think on this topic. And it felt like sort of a gap in the literature. So I just got a whole bunch of thoughts down on paper and wrote something. And then I sat on it for a while because I didn't, I don't have a lot of publication experience. So I didn't really know what to do next. And then I talked to my friend, um, Ollie Thompson, and he helped edit it and kind of guide it through the publication process. So yeah, about a year ago, we were able to get it in print and get it out there. And we've been pretty happy with how it's done in the last year. So yeah, in my mind, there could be like two initial driving forces for writing a book like this. One is just, you knew you wanted to write a chess book, and then you find the subject that you know you feel is best, uh, or you're just compelled by a subject and say, I've got to write about this. <laughs> it sounds like it was more the latter, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I just had a lot of thoughts. And one thing I do as a chess coach, both when I was you know teaching in-person classes and with chess.com, is I build up these chess-based files of just, oh, I see an interesting example. Let's save that from a grandmaster game or a student game or one of my games. And so I realized I kind of had the teaching material I needed. Um, and then I just had to write. I think as a short form kind of word to describe the subject of your book, it's, we could use the word resiliency, I think, perhaps, uh, as the, the, the skill and trait that we're talking about here, like not, not giving up on the game, even if you fall a bit behind. And as a player in your tournament career, but did you consider yourself someone who was, you know, had that as a strength or were you known as someone who had that as a strength? I don't know if I had a reputation. I don't think I'm well known enough for that. But <laughs> I, yeah, I felt like I was pretty resilient. And there are ways to kind of get yourself in the right mindset that I go into with the book. But it's like, okay, I messed up. And I don't want to just resign. So how can I make this interesting? And there are different things you can do. For instance, if you're just clearly not going to win. Just treat it as a new game where a draw counts as a win and play for that. You have to find a way to motivate yourself. There's no point in just sort of, you know, playing the last few moves really fast to get it over with. 
I mean, it's it's a really, I think, as you said, Jeremy, it's a really um, important subject, but one that's not talked about a lot. I mean, we always talk about bigger subjects, right? Like tactics, end games, openings, that sort of thing, and that makes sense. But, uh, but I think you know, after after going through your book, it does become clear to me that it's it's a skill into itself. Uh, it seems, and we'll we'll talk about this more, I guess, in a little bit, um, to be like, sort of like a, a a hybrid of a of a mindset as well as like just knowing strategically what to do when you're in those situations. And I'm curious, like, at what point in a club player's journey should this be something they start putting some time and effort into? Um. So I think step one is, you know, learn the basics, obviously how the pieces move, and then strategy, like opening principles, what all the, all the basic tactics are, and practice those, a couple of end games. And then once you have that, I think focus, spending some time thinking about competitive factors becomes relevant. Um, just for example, with my book, I'm not going to teach anyone what a fork is, but I'll talk about how you might end up using a fork to complicate the game in a difficult position. Your book focuses heavily on the strategic part of this, and that makes sense. Like, how do you actually turn around a game where, you know, you're at least a little bit behind? Uh, But it seems to me there's also a psychological component to this. Like, you have to be, it seems like you would start there, right? You have to, like, feel as though it's it's sort of your duty to, to keep fighting and to not get too discouraged or despondent about your situation. And once you do that, then it seems like the strategy can can march forward. But your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think a big step is to kind of understand that chess is hard. And obviously, if you have a bad position, it means you've done something wrong, probably. But also, chess is hard for your opponent, too. And so one of the big things in the book is knowing, like, oh, my position's difficult but okay, and if I defend solidly, I should make a draw, or my position's lost, but chess is difficult, let's find the moves that make it the hardest for my opponent to put it away. And you said in your book that if your position is truly hopeless and your opponent is sufficiently strong, then it's okay to resign, Uh, but if there are ways to get a better result, to keep fighting. That's the advice that you have in the book. Um, so I have a question about that. To me, some positions are, you know, just clearly and obviously hopeless. Like if your opponent has a queen and a rook and all you have is a king, uh, okay, you know, like, uh, unless you're like rated three or 400, <laughs> this is, they're going to checkmate you. Um, but you know, you show an example in the book of Fabiano Caruana being up two connected past pawns and still losing. And you know, when I look at a situation like that, if, if I were in that game, I'd, I'd probably consider it hopeless. I'd be like, well, he's got two connected past pawns, and I, I would probably put my odds of being able to win at that point at like less than 10%. How do you decide when it's worth fighting on, even if your position feels lost? So I think you have to kind of, so you think about the context, both of your opponent and, you know, how strong they are and how kind of one-sided the game is, but also a little bit what's going on in your sort of life and tournament situation. Um, Like if you're 99% sure you're going to lose and you need a chance to get food before the next round, you know, maybe you, maybe you do resign if maybe that's actually better for you in the long run, but 
I think most of the time, again, chess is immensely difficult. And at this point, say, engines can give, I don't know, at least two pawns to very, very strong players, you know, probably a piece to masters. Like, engine, the top engines could just spot a knight to a master. And that means that that master is making enough mistakes to lose a position up a knight. And, you know, most of you are playing opponents weaker than masters, and if you're down a knight, there's a chance to turn it around. Yeah, because I find, I find that part a little bit difficult, as I sort of alluded to. But would you, would you say that it's probably worth erring on the side of keep fighting if you're not sure? Definitely. And I'd say one aspect of that is also there's a chance to learn. Like, let's say you're playing a really good player, and you're pretty sure you're going to lose— you want to see how she's going to do it, though, right? You're, you can learn from that technique. If you resign, you know, maybe you'll get lucky and your opponent will want to analyze the game with you, but there's also a good chance you just don't get to learn any more from that experience. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because I think there's been some situations where, you know, I mean, most of the time I feel like if you're up a piece, you should win. If you're down a piece, you should lose, uh, you know, notwithstanding something particularly special about the the position but it, it hasn't always been the case for me i've had trouble sometimes putting away opponents even when i'm up a piece sometimes that's just due to time trouble but other times they still have some counterplay and i just or you know i'm just not skilled enough in chess yet to understand how to convert i try my best to trade off the rest of their pieces but it's not happening and yeah i guess this is just all to say that um it doesn't even seem clear necessarily at the club level that someone will definitely win, even if they're up a piece. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Um, and that's one way to think about it is like, am I sure that I could win this position every time? Because if I'm not, I probably shouldn't resign here. So I'm wondering if you can offer maybe one or two tips that are covered in your book. Obviously not to the full extent <laughs> sure, that they are sure. in your book, but uh, just a couple of ideas at least on how to defend or even convert a worse position. So one of the big things we get into in the book is the mindset of figuring out if your position needs to be held by being solid, like maybe I'm down a pawn, but I can aim for a fortress or something like that, or just if I trade enough pawns, I can sacrifice a piece for the last pawn and my opponent won't be able to win with just a knight or just a bishop, something like that. Or is my defensive strategy going to need to be, let's complicate the game and make my opponent make a lot of hard choices, and probably they won't be able to do it every step of the way. And the book kind of gets into what to look for, which which positions are going to be you know behind door number A, and which positions are good for door number B. Ah, letter. Letter A, letter B, excuse me. <laughs> right. Uh, and I suspect that complicating the position probably requires more pieces on the board. Is that generally true? Yeah, I think if there are more pieces, that gives you more room to make complications. And also sometimes just your compensation for the material situation could be the opponent's king is exposed or something like that. And maybe you even go behind more material because you have a mating attack or perpetual check or something like that to try to hold on and uh, cause just any sort of problem for your opponent. Oh, and one last question I have for you about the book. What's like sort of the low-end rating range that you would say it starts for? Like, where does it begin? I would say somewhere in the ballpark of about 1,400 would be 
a good place to start the book. So we don't teach the basic tactics, and it's not like an encyclopedia of the different types of draws in chess or anything like that. But we show you how to use those tactics and use um, the concept of a fortress to hold lots of tough positions. I see. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, I'd like to shift to discussing your work with chess.com. So you're the curriculum director there. Can you talk a little bit about what you do in that role? Yeah, I'd love to. We have at chess.com hundreds and hundreds of lessons um, and also videos. The main difference is if you want to do some challenge puzzles to make sure that you understand what's going on, it'll be a lesson. If you just want to watch, it's a video. And we've got um, so many of these covering everything, covering from you know the very basics of how to move the pieces up through super grandmasters explaining their best games or explaining quite difficult chess concepts. And so there's definitely something for everybody. And my role there is uh, coming out with a new lesson each week, or sorry, a new course full of several lessons each week usually. And I work with the various authors or occasionally write something myself. And we just give you kind of a new way of looking at the game and something new to learn each week. Do you have a, like a, a team of people that you work with to figure out what those lessons will be or who the next contributing guest will be for those lessons? Or <laughs> is it all you? Um, so yeah, I work with our director of content, Sam Copeland, to figure out uh, you know good authors to invite and brainstorm some topics. Also, if we have some really good authors, they'll recommend um, a topic they're interested in. And if they're passionate about a topic, I want to say yes. So unless we have it covered before or something like that, I'll okay it. Yeah. And, you know, in choosing that role in your in your chess career, like what what made you excited about doing something like that? Have you always had a passion for education? I mean, you wrote a book, so that sounds like you're, you're education-minded, but I'm, I'm curious what uh, what got you excited about being part of that role with chess.com. So I really like uh, being able to be engaged with chess content. I'm not doing a lot of like managing people or something, even though chess.com is a big company, I still have sort of a big role in exactly what the puzzles are going to be and how to make the videos as educational as possible. So I like staying on the chess side. And I just love that chess.com is the number one chess company in the world, I think. And so we have enormous reach. Um, when, you know, I don't know, Grandmaster uh, Hammer wants to record something on a topic that he loves, I can help get it out to, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and sometimes I think that the chess.com lessons are an underappreciated feature of the site. Uh, maybe even more so as like chess.com does all these amazing events and that I think maybe a little bit that becomes what they're known for, which is great. But uh, I, I wish sometimes that more people uh, were aware of some of those lessons or did them more often just because I think they're amazing and not as talked about as, as they deserve. Is there one lesson maybe in particular that you can think of that you wish people knew about that maybe a lot haven't discovered yet? I know there's probably a good number, but just one off the top of your head, perhaps that uh, that you want people to go to and see. So yeah, there are so many, but something new and really cool is we just finished a series on learning every opening. We actually covered 50 openings with an in-depth video explaining the ideas for both sides and a series of puzzles. 
And I think it's a great way of just if anyone wants to pick up a new opening, that's enough to kind of get you started and knowing what to look for and how to how to start playing some games. And maybe after, you know, you get to the next level, you need something a little more in depth. But that's a great way to learn just about anything. Yeah, I've recommended those to people because I think chess.com does a great job in those with really explaining the ideas. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I find they're more, here's the ideas of the opening. Uh, there's more of an emphasis on that than there is on tons of lines. And uh, really, I think that's what most people need first anyway, just understanding the ideas. Not to say that it doesn't cover lines, but you know that it, it really uh, has always helped me. I always use it and supplement with whatever repertoire course or book that I'm using because it just, it does such a good job of just Here's like the nuts and bolts basics of the opening. Here's what you absolutely need to know. But your thoughts? Yeah, I think learning the key ideas and just a little bit of the main line so you feel comfortable is what you need to do first. And then just jump in. And I'm a big fan of learning openings kind of step by step. You you learn your basics and then someone throws a new move at you. And you go and look up what happened in a Grandmaster game if that move was played or you figured out why don't any Grandmasters ever play that move. And you just sort of improve your repertoire one move, one game at a time. Yeah, a recent feature I've noticed in the lesson section that you've offered is, um, I, I don't know exactly what to call it, but it starts with play like, and then it's playing like a famous player, whether it was a world champion or even recently, Levy Rosman. And I think it's really cool. Um, what inspired creating that? I haven't seen anything like that in the chess world. So, yeah, that's one of our most extensive series is Play Like Whoever. Actually, our most popular, believe it or not, is Beth Harmon um, with examples from the Queen's Gambit TV show. And there's sort of a long history of courses like or features like that in chess. It's basically a guess the move setup where you're trying to predict the move from someone's best games. And the online format, I feel like, is really good for that, because if you're doing it from a magazine or something, you have to like physically cover up the moves so you don't spoil the answers. <laughs> and if you make an incorrect guess um, you know, in a magazine, it's hard to figure out why you were wrong. And so online is perfect, because we can anticipate those incorrect guesses and get, provide explanations, and we can select you know, the very best games and... As soon as you finish one, if you want more, go on to the next one. Yeah. Okay. So this has been going on longer than I think I even realized. Although I do, I do have a vague recollection of the play like Beth Harmon <laughs> um, version of that, which is really cool. Uh, and you're you're the one right authoring all of these, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So our video content, I'm usually in the background and just sort of helping the video authors and making sure the puzzles are good and everything. Uh, most of our written content the last couple of years has come from me because um, some people like to watch those videos and some people really just want to get to the puzzles and they don't want to listen to someone talk for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's a great series. I really like it. So what's your personal favorite lesson that you've worked on on chess.com? And it doesn't have to be based on its educational value. It can just be based on your own enjoyment you know, in its creation, uh, or cause you love the player that it focuses on or, or anything like that. Um, so something we've done a lot in the last year or so is we've done some courses that are like everything you need to know about. And we like really exhaust the topic, which I think it can be really cool. Um, I think the most popular one in that series is every gambit refuted, which is great for like 
Oh no, Eric Rosen popularized the unsound Stafford gambit <laughs> last year, and it, you might have lost a couple of blitz games to it. Let's not let that happen again. And Grandmaster Eugene Perelstein explains, you know, everything you need to know so that next time you face that, that gambit, you'll do fine. Um, and so we have it with that. We have opening traps. We've got just um, Alexandra Kostyanuk did every endgame you need to know. Um, and I think that sort of series can really kind of fill the user with confidence. You're like, I've got everything I need on this topic. I don't need to buy a book. Let's, let's go. So yeah, I just want to finish with a couple of hopefully simple and fun questions. <laughs> um, so I always intend for them to be that way, but then, uh, you know, uh, chess is serious for my guests. <laughs> they become serious questions. But anyway, uh, do you think you'll ever write a second book at some point? Um, and if so, what do you think uh, a topic might be? Um, I wouldn't bet against it, but I don't have any new topics in mind. I think I'm going to do a second edition of The Next to Last Mistake, focusing on you know just the same defensive topics, uh, with a few new puzzles and just a little, you know, a little brighter and shinier, um, and hopefully with a Kindle version. I've gotten some requests for people who want an, an e-book version, and I don't have that yet. Uh, so yeah, just um, a question that that I've had some fun asking a few guests in the past. Is there an opening? And this might be an interesting question to ask you because you've worked your <laughs> curriculum director. You've worked on so many like opening lessons. Um, so maybe this isn't the best question, but we'll see. Is there an opening that you haven't really played in your career that you've always kind of wanted to or wished you had? I think I have a little bit of regrets that I never like played a bunch of open Sicilians when I was a kid. Um, and it's not that I like can't play those positions, but they're not as intuitive to me as a lot of other types of positions. So what did you, what did you play instead? I've played mostly E4, E5 as black for years. There's enough room there. You can switch systems, but without having to like just switch, which first move you play. But the Sicilian is such an interesting type of position that I feel like it's a little bit intimidating to suddenly be like, oh, I'm going to master the Sicilian right now. And it's like, oh, man, I should have played that 20 years ago. Right. Yeah, it seems like it would be a difficult one to just jump into and try. I mean, I shouldn't say try, but like actually try to, you know, get decent at. I mean, you could always just mess around for any any handful of Blitz games, I guess. But but to make it a serious part of your repertoire seems like a really big undertaking. Yeah. And again, nothing wrong with E5. It's a good, it's a good move. Um, but honestly, the Sicilian as black and even as white, I, you know, when I was playing E4 a lot as a kid, I mostly played, you know, closed Sicilian or C3 Sicilian. So I just never like got that intuitive feel for exactly what tactics to look for and where the pieces go in those sharper, you know, open Sicilian structures. Did you ever get so far as to wonder uh, or to kind of know which Sicilian you would have done if you'd play the Sicilian? I played the uh, con variation. So that's an early E6, A6 in just like, you know, two or three serious games and then went back to E5. <laughs> was It was that experience was enough to just say, I'm not switching, huh? It was okay, <laughs> but it's also intimidating when you switch first moves to learn like all those sidelines. Yeah. Right? You get all excited. Yeah. Like I'm going to play an open Sicilian and beat this guy. And then you're like, oh, it's a C3 Sicilian. We're going to have a long positional struggle. Right, right, exactly. 
Well, it was great chatting with you, Jeremy. I really appreciated your time today and uh, getting insights on, on a lot of different things, your own chess history, ideas behind your book and why it's important to kind of have that fighting spirit and not only just have that fighting spirit, even if you're a little bit down, but know exactly what you should do in those situations, which your book covers. Um, and then, of course, discussing your time with chess.com and, you know, just, just your experience creating these lessons and what some of your favorites were. So, uh, all said, just want to say thank you so much. It was really entertaining and interesting. And uh, I learned some stuff too from my own game and hopefully others did as well. So thank you very much for being on the show. And I had a great time, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are ever in Chicago again, let me know. We can get some pizza. <laughs> oh, sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.